to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. book of the Bible, and also to the first chapter, so Genesis chapter 1, we're going to re- be reading a portion of scripture here in a moment, I want to take a break from 2 Corinthians here this morning to talk about humankind, I want to talk about who we are and what we're here for and talk about life, some of the big questions sometimes, but I want to talk about you and I being made in the image of God, really want to talk about human dignity, sanctity of life, what is the things that is it that we hold dear, what is it that God has shared and revealed through his word that can help us in these days. I want to start off by sharing with you that human dignity is derived from God. It is God who assigns value to man. And we see that very clearly in the Old Testament law in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, when we read the commandment, you shall not murder. And you might recall that there has been times where I've shared with you, when you look at Scripture you're going to find what's called precepts. And the precepts are the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, for you KJV fans. The things that you're to do and the things that you're not to do, those are called precepts. And any time we've, we've made the analogy for you and I as parents, whenever we tell our children what they can do and what they can't do, they always will ask one question. And what's that one question? Why? And so scripture understands that also. So when God gives us a precept, it points to a biblical principle. Okay? So in this case, God says, Thou should not kill. That's the precept, and it points to a principle, and that principle actually points to the person who gives the precept. So, very clearly, let me say this. So, as parents, we need to be careful. For when you make a precept or a rule, a house rule, something for your children, it should be backed up by a principle. If you were to say, do not do this, and your children ask why, and our response usually is because what? I just said to you, I gave you the the clue. Because I said so. How many of you that, when you were teenagers, that worked enough for you? Not too many. And if you said yes, it probably because your dad had a bigger belt than you did or something of that case. But most of us do not accept because I said so. And in the same way, I'm thankful that we don't have a God who says, thou shall not kill. And we say, why not? He just says, because I said so. There's a principle behind it. And the importance of that principle is it tells us something about the person or the character of God. So, When I say to my children, I want you, when they were teenagers, I want you home by blank, okay? Say if they were still in high school. 
it was be home by 10. Okay? Now that's a burdensome rule, is it not? That is awful. It was very close. You could almost call the child services on me for saying be home at 10. But there was a principle behind it. The principle was, is I want you to be safe. After 10 o'clock, for a young person, there's a lot going on. And also, I want you, I know that you have school the next day. What it was pointing to is, I love you and I want the best for you. Now, that does not mean that they still understand and accept the rule, does it? They may say, well, your principle is stupid and I hate you. Okay? You don't really love me. If you love me, you would let me do what I... Okay, you guys are... It's like a, it's like a role playing right around, right? Well, that's what we have here in Scripture. Here, Jesus, or God, excuse me, says, Thou shall not kill. And it points to a principle where God says, Wait a second, I value life. You do not kill because they are my children. And it points to a loving God who says, I'm the giver and taker of life. And I do so justly. So when we see a precept, it points to a principle which points to the person. So I would just give you as a free advice, parents, when you're putting down a precept, think through the principle. What does it say about you? Because if we're honest, there are many times we have set down rules and regulations that have nothing in it but us saying, I'm a bully, and I get to make the choices, right? So be very, very careful with that, because it says something about you. Okay, let's go back to the message. So God says, thou shall not murder. Human dignity is derived from God, and it's God who has designed value, or excuse me, assigned value to human life. Now Jesus actually interpreted that more fully. If we were to go to Matthew chapter 5, Take, keep your hand in, in Genesis. Go to Matthew chapter 5 real quickly. Let me show you that, just so that we're all on the same page. We may do some, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to some different scriptures with me today. Don't feel bad if you're not able to keep up. I'll just give you a moment to do that. Just write them down on your bulletin on the back, and that way you can take a look at them later if you need it. But in Matthew chapter 5, there was... Uh, some confusion, or maybe not some confusion, but what they were doing is they were taking the law of God and they were expanding it or cutting it to their own advantage. But Jesus here says in Matthew 5.21, he says, You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, speaking of the, 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 their, their ancestors, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So to be angry with a brother makes you guilty of the same offense. But he goes on to say whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus not only expands it, but he gives the seriousness of thou shalt not murder. In other words, the opposite side is God says, you are to love each other. You are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Today I want to give you four observations and three implications about the value of life and how you and I are to hold the sanctity of life as God does. Father, be with us this morning. I pray that you would speak through your words. I pray that your Holy Spirit will touch each heart. 
And I pray for those that are here, you have prepared something special for them. Be with my lips, may they just speak uh, truthfully. Uh, be with my uh, speech, may it be clear. And I pray that you would do the work that you have prepared for us. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So let's go with the four observations. For those of you who like to take notes, the first thing that you need to understand is the uniqueness of man. And when I use the word man, I'm speaking in humankind. So when I hear that, women, you are not uh, uh, absolved from this or taken away, but we're going to use the word man, the uniqueness of man. Now go to Genesis chapter 1 where, we were, where I had you at early. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 26. This is after God has made all of creation. He has one thing to left do, and he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, and over the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 is our key verse this morning. So God created man in what? His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see here is God is doing something more unique than he's already done. I mean, I think the, the whole fact of creation is unique. But in man, there's something that's more unique about man than anything else. Man, out of all of his creation, was created in the image of God. I'd like to read for me from Wayne Grubman, for he writes... Out of all of the creatures of God, only one creature is said to be made in the image of God, and that's man. And what does that mean? He says, we may say that the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. When God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the meaning is that God plans to make a creature similar to, to himself. Both the Hebrew word for image and the Hebrew word for likeness refers to something that is similar. And that's important for us to understand. But not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. The word image can also be used as something that represents something else. So when it says that we are made in the likeness of God, it's saying that we are similar and we're made in the likeness of of our Creator. This understanding, he goes on to write, is what it means that man is created in the image of God is reinforced by the similarity between Genesis 1.26 and where God declares his intention to create man in his image and likeness and Genesis 5.3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 5.3. For what does he say there? When Adam had lived 130 years, he became a father and of a son in his own likeness and after his image, and he named him Seth. That's what we see here, is that we see that Seth was not his father, but he was made in similar way and in the likeness of his father. R.C. Sproul says, Creation in the image of God is what sets humans apart from all other creatures. The stamp of the image and likeness of God connects God and mankind uniquely. For many of us now, we'll say, what does it mean to be in the image of God? And we try to think, well, do we, do we have some attributes of God? Or you know, are we omniscient? No, we don't have those types of things. There are some attributes that God has 
communicable to us or may communi- communicate that we are like him. We love. We can, we can have feelings as he does. We're able to reason as he does. We have an intellect as he does. But obviously there are some things and ways we are not like him. But what it means is God, man, above all of creation, is unique in that creation. We ourselves bear the image of God. We are in the likeness and image of him. And with that, the second thing I'd like you to see there as we go on is that man is like God in the fact that he created us with responsibilities. Man was created with responsibilities. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. I'm sure you're very close to there. It says, The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So when we see creation, God looks and he sees he has all the animals, he has the birds, he has the creeping things, he has his trees and his plants, he has his mountains, he has his oceans. But in it he says, I need someone to represent me on that earth. And in it he says, we will take man, create him like us, in our image, in our likeness, we'll put him there on the earth, and he will work it and keep it for me. He will represent me. He will be my ambassador. Man, R.C. Sproul said, is given the ability and the responsibility to mirror and reflect the holy character of God. And that work and keep it is so powerful. We can just go past those words. And in our men's group several years ago, we went through what it meant to, to work and to keep. I have to challenge you. Do you work and keep as an image bearer of God? To work, it means we work as God works. We keep and protect and guard not only our wives, but our families and our jobs and the people around us. In other words, God says, life has a certain meaning for me. I value life. Human dignity is important to me, for I created it uniquely. And I have given it a responsibility to work the land and to keep the land as my representative. The third thing that we see is God assigns value to man. And this is a great one. Turn to Psalms chapter 139. Excuse me. Psalms 139. It's a very familiar portion of scripture. But what we see is that man was created and crafted personally by God. Many times when we think of human, we just think of just kind of like we're just a bunch of widgets that are going through some type of assembly line. But what we get from the psalmist, from David, is just into the inner inner workings of God. Psalms 139. Look at verse 13. David writes to God, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What is that scripture telling us? Is that we are crafted 
and created personally by God, uniquely, each and every one of us. Many times we'll say, well, look at that. That must be a mistake, but it isn't. A child born with Down syndrome or born with some type of other disability, that is not a mistake of God, but created for some special purpose. Many times we look at people and we think of the old, uh, the freaks and the geeks. We make fun of them. We go to circuses and carnivals and we like to watch movies that make fun of those type of people, but they too are children of God, personally handcrafted by God for a special purpose. They too have a purpose and a responsibility and are made in the likeness and the image of God. We live in a world that is so blind to the human dignity that God created. And when from this is? From conception, before time was begun. Some people ask, well, where does life begin? Let me tell you this, it began or begins in the mind of God. When he fashions it and forms it, what he creates will come complete. Job 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He goes on to say, Did he who not, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Isaiah, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are still, or we are all the work of your hand. Let me share with you, there is no one that is beneath or less that is in the image of God. I think of, you know, I'm not going to get his name, so Don, I need you to give me his name. Nick somebody. Nick somebody. Uh, I, I think we've seen it. It's, you know, Randy is gone. but it's a, it's a man from Australia, and he was born with no hands. He was born with no legs. Uh, he just has a body, obviously, in his head, and, and he has just on one of his appendages, he has a little a little little um, appendage that he kind of uses, kind of almost like a flipper. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Okay, you've seen his, sto- his story. Wonderful story. He's taught himself to swim. He lives by himself. Just got married, I think, last year. He's expecting a a child, and he goes around and sharing just how wonderful God has been to him. I couldn't even imagine. Or probably the most famous one, Joni Erickson Cantata. Yeah, Cantata or Tata? Tata. We were just listening a little bit about her story yesterday, Matt and I. What a wonderful uh, woman of God who says that she would not change. I think if I'm not here, if I heard him right, she would not change her disability because she's more of who God designed her. And she was actually born physically fine. It was in a, a pool accident or jumped in a, a creek or a lake or something, uh, hurt her spine and almost drowned. But we need to realize that human dignity is not based on appearance. It's not based on where someone is born. It's not based on who their parents were. But it's based on the fact that they were created and personally crafted in the minds and the hands of an almighty God who says, let them be. We're not spoke, we're not spoke or they're not, we're spoken in existence and handcrafted, as he said. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We were not spoken into existence as the rest of God's creation, but God breathed into us. The first mention of CPR in the scripture, right? And he breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. So we see the uniqueness of man, that man was created with responsibilities, that man was created and crafted personally. And then I get to the fourth observation about the dignity and the value of human life. And that's the fact that man was created with a, pers- with a purpose. We're created with a purpose. As, as the image bearer of God, crafted in the likeness and in his image, we have a purpose. Some of us question that purpose. Many books are written about that purpose. Many messages are given about that purpose. I'd like to give you the testimony of several Old Testament saints in Isaiah where he says, The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, from the womb, he says, I was created, and I was given a purpose. My purpose is to be a servant of the Lord by bringing Jacob back to him by my preaching and my teaching. Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says to him. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations book of Acts, we see that David, when he had served the purposes of God in his generation, he died. And you and I have a bad habit. You and I have a habit of reading these great heroes of faith and saying that we are not like them. God might have set him apart from the womb. God might have given him a responsibility. God may have gave him a purpose, but I don't. That's not true. But God says that his purpose is to make you into the image of his son. And he's called us to live our lives as one who has repented from dead works and turn and put our trust in him and take up our cross and following him. We all have a purpose. And that purpose is similar to Isaiah, to David's, and Jeremiah to be a servant of the Lord. It may function, may look differently. God says, I have given life so that they may represent me, they may serve me here on earth. So we see the uniqueness of man. We see man was created with responsibilities. We are created and crafted personally by God and created with a purpose. In here we see that human dignity is derived from God. It is God who assigns value to each and every man. Hence, when he says, thou shalt not kill, he says, if you kill, if you murder, you take away what I'm doing. You're fighting against me. Now, I pray as you see through Scripture, you'll see the human dignity and the sanctity of life. I don't think there's many of us that would argue that point. But now I want to come to the most difficult part of the message, because most of you probably agreed with what I said. Here's the Scripture, here's God's Word. It's very easy to interpret. But I want to share with you three implications. And I want to share, I want you to listen to me very carefully. 
because the message and the implication of this human dignity can be difficult in this world, in this life. For now, I'm about to get some things which people are going to say, wait a second, now you're getting political. You're making a political message. This is not a political message. But these spiritual passages have political implications. When we see Scripture, when we submit to Christ, when we understand His Word, it has implications in our lives that many times can be difficult. We saw that this past week. I think today, is today um, the inauguration? I think, is it today? Or is it tomorrow? It's today. I think think it's today. But in it, we had a pastor, Lou Giglio. I don't know if many of you have heard him, but he's uh, a pastor out of Atlanta. Pretty good pastor, evangelist. Uh, does has a great ministry with young people. He spends a lot of his ministry today helping women out of the sex trade. And so because of that, the the, uh, the administration had asked him to come and, and pray at the inauguration. But after doing some study and looking at some of his message, they had found out 15 years ago, he had the audacity to quote scripture and say that homosexuality was wrong. And for that, they disinvited him and says that he must repent and now show that his mind has evolved over the years or his ideas have evolved. What we're finding out today, that if you believe Scripture and you live out its implications, you very well could be disinvited from public life. If you were to say, this is what Scripture says, and I know the implication is this, and you say, I'm going to live with that implication because we believe it's right, it will cause you problems. We see that with Hobby Lobby. They face a, what, $1.3 million fine a day for continuing to say that we will not support certain types of things. And so today I'm going to challenge you in our thinking and our heart in three ways in which we think about human dignity. Here's the first implication. Human dignity and the sanctity of life includes racial hatred, bigotry, and prejudice. Tomorrow on January 21st, we're going to recognize the efforts of civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr., Though to many people he may be a polarizing man in many circles, he may be a hero to some and a demon to others, he brought to light a very dark period of American history that is marked with ungodly attitudes and behavior towards people of different color, of different race and nationality. We cannot ignore that. And it is sad to say is that the church participated in many of these things. I remember a principal of mine. So we're talking 19, so about 19, from 1982 to about 1992, uh, my former principal um, took a pastorate in Alabama. And he was at that church for a while, and the next thing I heard is he was forced out. You hear that all the time. Pastors forced out. And in talking, what's going on? You know why he was forced out? 
because his deacons refused to allow the black people to come to the church. 1980, you know, so probably about late 1980s in Alabama. This is a church, and this is a, by the way, this, this principal pastor friend of mine is a good, solid man. But this is our American history. But it follows itself even today. We recognize that there's still racial hatred. There is bigotry and there is prejudice. And let me share with you, is that when God says that he assigns value to man and that there is a human dignity that we need to observe, it comes in the fact that you and I have to realize that we have been blind to that when it comes to people of different uh, cultures, different races, different nationalities. The Bible tells us in Luke, love your neighbor as yourself. And what did the self-righteous man say? Who is my neighbor? Remember that story? And then God, Jesus, gives him a parable of the what? Anyone know? The Good Samaritan. You know the story. A Jew was beaten up and robbed and left on the side of the road. A priest comes by and walks, sees him. A fellow Jew, he goes on the other side. There's a Levi that sees him, another religious man. He sees him, and instead of helping him, he crosses to the other side of the road. And there he lays, beaten, probably near death, with no help from his fellow man. Not only that, but from other religious leaders. Until along comes the road, a good Samaritan, a Samaritan, who not only binds his wounds, helps him up, but then gives him lodging and says, I will pay for his lodging. Now you think, well, that's a great story, but you need to understand the difference between a Jew and a Samaritan. The Jews believe themselves as, the, as God's chosen people as they are. But what was their attitude towards the Samaritans? Hatred. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were only half-Jews and quarter-Jews. There was no talk. A Jew would, uh, would travel all the way around Samaria, Samaria and go to the place above it and they would not cross down the middle of it. They would extend their journey by days, so they would have to have no contact with a Samaritan. So what do we find is someone who is hated, someone who is considered a half-breed, goes out of his way to help someone. Who's my neighbor? Everyone is my neighbor. doesn't matter whether they're black, they're white, they're Jew, they're Italian, they're, they're, they're Hispanic. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that you and I need to have the same dignity for life that God does. And so the implication is that it reflects how you and I treat and think of other people. And you know, be honest, I don't know if any of you struggle with that. I don't know if you do. Most of us come to that place. Maybe we have it in certain ways. I don't think it's as prevalent as some try to make it, but I, pray, I, I, I think it's probably there more than we like to admit. So I would challenge you, how do you see people? How would you see if they started coming to the church? Do you see the dignity of life as God sees them? Even the homeless woman that were to come in here this morning with her bags, who would be dirty and filthy, she were to sit here and just wanted a cup of coffee in a warm place, she too bears the image of God. The second place that it affects is actually a tough one. For human dignity is actually found in what we would call capital punishment, the death penalty. 
You see, the Bible realized that any assault against human life is considered an assault against God himself. Take your Bibles very quickly. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. When God says, you shall not murder, there's a purpose. For if you assault life itself, you assault the dignity and the image of God himself. Genesis chapter 9, this is Noah. The earth is now devastated as far as, create, as, far as uh, human population. All that is left is Noah and his family. God is telling him, now you need to multiply the earth. You've got a lot of work to do. And to do so, God institutes something different than we've seen before in the Old Testament. Where he says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, he tells Noah. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What is God saying there? If an animal takes a man's life, I'm going to judge that animal. If another man kills another man, murders another man, I will judge, I will be a reckoning. He goes on to tell us in Exodus 21, eventually it's codified in Exodus 21, verse 12. He says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies, he shall be put to death. But if he did not die, lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point you a place for which you may flee. But, and we're speaking here of premeditated murder, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. In other words, God is saying, I don't care if he goes into my sanctuary and grabs hold of the altar and asks for forgiveness, that man must bring into judgment. Why? Because God values life. And the ultimate penalty for devaluing life is the forfeit of your own life. Here in California, I think we just had a, a vote on that. And to be honest, I'm not even sure how it wound up, to be, to be honest with you. And many people question, should Christians be for the death penalty? And I would have to share with you, scripturally, yes. For an assault against life is an assault against God himself. Life should be so sacred that it must never be destroyed without just cause. I want to get to the last implication because this may be the most difficult for us today for it's one of the most polarizing issues that face Christians and non-Christians alike, men and women, women, men. And that's about the sanctity of life when it comes to the issue of abortion. Next Tuesday marks the 40th anniversary of Road versus Wade. Since that decision came down on January 22nd of 1973, over 55 million unborn human beings have been killed legally in the United States. That is more than eight times the people who died in the Holocaust. Over a million abortions are performed in America each year. Reports last year indicated that over 40% of all pregnancies in New York end in abortion a rate that increases to almost 60% of pregnancies among African-American women. 
the vast majority, 90%, 90% of unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome are now aborted. Let me say that again. The vast majority, 90% of unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome are now aborted. They are now an endangered species. Our children are endangered species. Sex, sex selection abortions are legal in the wide open right to abortion declared by the court. Prenatal testing of other characteristics means that parents can now abort a baby that does not meet their specific specifications and try again. So here's the question, and here's the debate. Is abortion a form of murder? Does abortion involve the willful destruction of a living human person? Well, I would have to ask the question, well, who determines what life is and when it begins? I think I've shared with you very clearly, and the scriptures are clear, that God is the one who decides that life begins in the mind of God when he creates a person. And it takes seed at the moment of conception, from the moment of the womb. For most people, when life begins is the most important question. And I will say, even though that these, these, these statistics are very difficult to hear, you'll see that the, the pro-life has actually grown as the advent of new medical um, technologies, ultrasound and such, um, become more available and people are able to see more about what's happening in the womb. But is abortion a form of murder? For it is. For it is the image of God, created and crafted personally by him. When God says, thou shalt not murder, he means not murder. But now we live in a world in which gender side is the norm. Whether you're talking China, India, or even the United States. Gender side is deciding, well, we don't want a girl, especially if you're in a developing country, you abort your girls. There is no law that prevents you from doing so. And there's no law to prevent you from saying, well, we have a child with Down syndrome, as genetic testing becomes more, we have a child that's this, let's get rid of it. There's no law to stop you from that. We have a president who voted against a law that would prevent doctors from killing a child after it's been born and is viable. That's the type of world we live in. The value of life has gone down. Is the issue really gun control? Or really is the issue is the fact that we no longer value life? We no longer see people with human dignity. Is really the problem is that a poverty is the fact that we can't make enough food, grow enough food for everyone? We can do that, can't we? We can. Is the fact that capital, you know, capitalism, I'm not going to be able to say it. I'm starting to get emotional anyway. Is it that we can't build them up? No, it's because really we just don't see no value in life. John Piper makes a very important observation when he writes that both Psalms 139 and Job 31 emphasize God as the primary workman the primary nurturer, the fashioner, the knitter, the creator in the process of gestation of the baby in the womb. 
Why is that important? It's important, he writes, because God is the only one who can create personhood. Mothers and fathers can contribute some impersonal egg and some impersonal sperm, but only God creates independent personhood. So when the scripture emphasizes that God is the main nurturer and shaper in the womb, it is stressing that what is happening in the womb is a unique work of God, namely the making of a person. From the biblical point of view, gestation is the unique work of God where he's fashioning personhood. It's interesting, one of the chief functions of the law is to protect the rights of individuals. John Locke, who was one of the uh, uh, English philosophers and who was uh, relied upon, he didn't write, obviously, the Declaration of Independence, uh, but he was one of the ones uh, whose philosophies shaped it. Since we hold these truths to be self-evident, he did, this is the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. His philosophy goes like this. All men are born under natural law, a law which comes from God and can be known by all rational creatures. The law requires us to preserve, protect, and work for the flourishing of human life. And because of this natural law, no one has the right to arbitrarily take another man's life. And all men, therefore, are born free with a God-given right to life, liberty, and property. He says, not all, all, he says all men are born equal, not in the absolute sense of equality, but in the sense that they are by nature free. What I thought was most important about his philosophies is that the natural state of liberty is threatened by the persistent evil of man. We consent to be governed and join civil, uh, civil society to gain protection from the evils of others and because we're prone to wrongdoing ourselves. But we now have a government that destroys its innocence and coddles the evil. proper role of government then is to safeguard my life and liberty on that of my neighbor. Except if you're a black child, a girl, or you have some type of Down syndrome or some type of disability. No longer are you considered human. I love this quote. This is our first task as a society. Keeping our children safe. This is how we'll be judged. Let me read this again. This is our first task as a society. Keeping our children safe. This is how we'll be judged. Would you agree with that? President Obama, speaking on gun control, as he continues to promote the killing thousands of children. I've just given you some tough law. The law says do not murder. Why? Because God values life. We are created uniquely as the image 
bearer of God. We are put on this earth with a purpose to be a servant of him as we redo our responsibilities of protecting and keeping what he has given us over. We are personally and crafted and created by God, each and every one of us, an individual, to his liking. No matter what our flaws may be or whatever our foibles may be, we're created by a personal God. And in that, we see that the implication is that we have failed terribly as a church. We have failed terribly as a nation. We have failed terribly as individuals. Now let me share with you the gospel. If you're here this morning, and you have participated in racial hatred and bigotry and prejudice, and I would admit I have, if you've been involved and participated in hurting someone, maybe to the point of taking life, or even as scripture says, being angry or calling someone a fool, you're devaluing life. And even if you're here this morning and you have had an abortion, you've encouraged others to do so. You have transgressed God's law. And you have devalued life. But the gospel, praise God, as God says, if you confess with your mouth, if you repent of that work, that God will forgive you of that and he'll bring healing into your life. And I pray that you would do so this morning. Have you valued life in the way that God has valued life? That's what God has called us to do as image bearers of him. What can we do? I'm going to give you three things real quickly. How do we respond to this type of message? One, is confess that sin if you've been involved and then fall onto the grace of God who forgives murderers high and low alike. Our first response is to contemplate contemplate such an evil is we should pray that God would eradicate evil in all of its forms. Whether it's abortion, whether it's murder, whether it's racial prejudice and hatred, in any devaluing of human life, you and I need to pray that God would eradicate it. For one day he will, amen. But we as the church can do what we can to begin to eradicate it in our influence. We can support the living well pregnancy across the street with our time, with our giving and our prayers as we've just taken them on as part of our mission. We can also reach out to others of other races and other cultures and other nationalities. We can reach across to those whose lives, to them, probably have no value. Reach out to them, love them. Let's try to restore them back to society, not house them and put them away somewhere where they're out of our way, but let's reach out and lift them up. And then thirdly, we must proclaim the gospel faithfully in our circle of influence. For what needs to happen is we need to understand the implication of what Scripture says about human life. It will be difficult. The majority of the time, we will be in the minority. God has called us to be faithful, 
to value life as he values life. For he is the giver and taker of it. Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning, a tough message. But Lord, we thank you for life. We take it so much for granted. And Lord, I know as we read through this, many of us, uh, we could have turned it off. We could say, this is not me. But I pray that you would search our hearts. For one, what does your scripture say? Are we valuing all types of life that you've given? Whether they're rich or poor, whether they're of the same nationality or not, whether they're physically disabled or they're physically a fine specimen. Lord, do we value life? And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength to live out these implications. For too long, the church has been silent. And let us not be. Let us speak the truth of your word as you reveal yourself to us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.